Hi, and welcome to the Look Back podcast. My name is Henrik Matson, and I am the CEO of Look Back and also your host for this podcast. In, these pod in this podcast series, we are going to be talking to a lot of experienced and interesting uh, researchers uh, from a bunch of different uh, companies in our industry. Uh, and we will be talking to them about what I think is the most interesting and most pressing problem that our community and industry is facing right now, uh, which is how do we bring our teams along on this journey that is research? Uh, how do we get them to engage with the important work that we're doing? And how do we build better products and experiences together as a result of that? So with us today, uh, we have Jing Jing Tan, who is uh, in research leadership at Uber, uh, Uber Eats specifically. Uh, before that, she was um, doing some agency work at TWG, which for us Canadians uh, is a very uh, famous agency in Canada. Uh, and before that, she's also had uh, a bunch of different uh, team, of, team of one positions, etc., in different companies. Uh, she'll tell us more about that. So welcome to the show and thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Henrik. Awesome. So uh, I'd like to start with uh, always asking my guests how they got into research, because I know that this, there are a lot of people getting into research all the time. We're a rapidly growing field, and that's great. Uh, but I also know that a lot of people joining um, you know, this industry always wonder, well, do I have the right background? Do I belong here? And when I talk to people who have been here for a while, it's pretty obvious to me that people have all sorts of kind of backgrounds and ways into this. So so I always like to kind of spend some time on that. So could you tell us kind of your origin story as a researcher, please? Yeah, I'd love to. So I, I love that you mentioned that there's a diversity of backgrounds of researchers coming in because I, I saw a graph a couple of days ago where it highlighted exactly that where people in the research field have come from marketing intelligence, come from product, come from design, but also maybe some of the less traditional paths such as support, uh, so communication operations, supports, and also um, technical supports, uh, academia. So like you said, there's such a wide range of folks coming into research. And I was lucky to have gotten into research about a decade ago from the uh, communications and technical support route. So thinking about, I actually came from the trust and safety side. So I was a trust and safety agent for a huge um, reading and writing platform online. And that's how I first got into tech and also how, how I first got into research. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, but I, overall, I would say I was really lucky to have worked at a number of different companies, both big and small, and also, like you said, across product companies and agencies and consultancies. And um, I think that wide range of experience allowed me to see a lot of user strategy blind spots in different organizations. And that's why I feel very, very passionate about being that bridge between the customers and the companies so that we can remove those blind spots. So let's rewind a little bit to my origin story. Um, so I started, like I mentioned, as a trust and safety specialist for a reading and writing platform called Wattpad. It was also started here in Canada. And um, from there, I was able to really see a lot about the psychology of users who were putting in trust and safety complaints. So within about a year, I was talking to my manager about transitioning into user experience research and 
kind of took on from there. Uh, started leading a team there as well. And then after about four years, I wanted to see other types of companies, other types of industries. So transition into a healthcare startup. And um, there I was a sole researcher in a 20 person startup. So again, very, very different environment, very different challenges. And um, that company was very, very data centric and product centric. And so that was a good way for me to really pick up on some of the data skills and product skills. And then from there, went into TWG at the consultancy and really wanted to explore different industries. My goal there was to really get um, a, uh, a holistic overview of the different industries that are out, that are out there before deciding the next, my next move, my, the next industry that I want to be in. And what I loved about consultancy is that it's very fast paced and you're able to become somewhat of an expert, obviously not a deep expert, but somewhat of an expert in different industries very quickly. So really, really stretched, you know, my research skills and also led a team there. So I currently work at Uber Eats. I lead a team of researchers across uh, membership, merchant and ads. And it's been three years so far and I'm loving every single day of it. It's um, such a wild ride given that we've had to go through the pandemic and really help to support small and medium-sized businesses as well as enterprise restaurants in, in this transition, the pandemic transition. So that's my journey so far. And I am very committed to helping companies remove blind spots about their users and really helping to have product teams understand how different it is to build products for wacky human brains because we're actually not very rational people, even though, you know, folks on the other side, folks who are building products might think that humans are rational. The reality is we're not rational, our behaviors are not rational, and that's why user research and UX research exists. Awesome. Well, this is going to be super interesting to ask you about all of these things. Uh, <laughs> yes. That's an interesting journey. So I have a quick little question first that, uh, well, I'm the host, so I can ask whatever I want. So sure. is it extra hard to to research Uber Eats? Because are people like hangry when they order stuff? <laughs> like the, I don't know. How do you, how do you deal with that? Do you, do, can people question. not eat before they go into a session and stuff? Or? <laughs> Such a great question. Um, so I would say that when we design research uh, around the, the eater side, the consumer side, we want to make sure that we time it according to what people's needs are rather than our research needs. So roughly we would, for example, if we do a diary study, we'll just have people start recording once they are hungry and want to start uh, ordering food. So that removes the hangry barrier. Um, if we're doing interviews or observational studies, we'll give, we'll get a rough timeline for when they're starting to order food and we'll actually, you know, make, make that time. So we try our best to work with them rather than keep our customers hungry until we arrive. I think that would be pretty awesome. cruel. <laughs> yes, yes. E ethical dilemma, but you know, the research got to be done. So good. Okay. Awesome. Um, uh, so, uh, on your, um, you, you've been talking about this thing being a a bridge between customers and and companies, and I uh, I, I think that's a very nice way of putting it. And uh, 
you know, I actually used to, I had a period in my life when I was actually building like real bridges, physical bridges. So, so for oh, me, wow. this is a great metaphor, uh, metaphor. I don't know if this is going to help everyone else, but you know, one thing you learn when you build a bridge is that it's the bridge heads that are the important parts, right? Because one side of a river isn't the same as another side of the river, right? So it kind of, when mm -hmm. you're establishing the bridgehead with the, with the users, I guess that's like one metaphor we could deep dive into, but the one that I'm extra interested uh, in for this podcast series is kind of the the bridgehead with the company and the different stakeholders and kind of the the whole research culture and and the place of research in the organization and, and stuff like that and i guess over your career in all of these different companies you must have seen all all sorts of things like how do you what's your view on how you establish a good and stable uh, bridgehead in a company and and what would your tips be for like someone who um who's starting out for example or who feels like they're struggling with this in their current company oh such a good question um you know we we talk a lot about ux maturity and ux research maturity and i think having been at different companies i've definitely seen a wide range of research maturity so i would say usually when a company is less mature in terms of user experience and um, user research the beachhead that typically researchers use would be usability testing. It's immediate, you can get results right away, you get that feedback and you can see how the customer feedback translates directly into product improvements overnight. So I would say I've seen researchers succeed when they are at low maturity companies, UX maturity companies, to actually start kind of pitching usability testing and also have stakeholders listen to the recordings or watch the sessions happen. Because like I said about blind spots, when we are building products on our side, we tend to have all these assumptions about how users would behave, what their mental models are, how they kind of think about products. And the aha moment is when you get the team together and they hear directly from customers, hey, this, your mental model is wrong. And here's why, here's how I view the world and here's why we need to tweak the product to fit my worldview. So I think that's usually the aha moment that um, researchers at these early stage companies and low UX maturity companies can have and use in order to raise visibility of research. And then once you get to kind of the mid maturity research um, organizations, you then start to move more into a combination of generative research and usability research. So obviously still having kind of a usability piece in order to show to stakeholders overnight feedback, but also having a little bit more of longer term strategic research in order to identify some of the unmet needs and some of the innovation oriented opportunities. So starting to move more strategic more strategically upstream. I've seen folks um, succeed in doing that at mid-maturity, UX maturity companies. And the thing about strategic research is, again, I think it's high ambiguity and it's really, really important to involve stakeholders along the way. So um, when you are kicking off the work, when you're scoping it, really, really important to make sure that this research is going to be helpful for the business. So getting the team together, understanding the business context, understanding the product constraints, understanding uh, some of the engineering constraints that you might be having, what data you already have, 
those are the things that you want to be navigating through as you're scoping out strategic research. And similarly to evaluative research, have your stakeholders either listen to recordings or have, listen to clips, audio clips, or have them, better yet, sit in on the sessions and they can back channel you questions to ask. So I would say that those are probably kind of the best ways to involve stakeholders. If you have time and if you have a willing audience, I would say even group synthesis is super, super interesting. Having a debrief with the whole team, really getting their unique perspectives on what they've learned, what's surprising for them and so on. Now, at higher maturity, UX maturity companies, then the companies will mostly focus on the strategic work and also have longer term projects. So projects can span from maybe a quarter to maybe half of a year. And those are, I would say, you know, the higher strategic, longer term visioning related, strategy related research that you can have. So actually at Uber right now, we're having one of those projects. We're actually doing it on a condensed timeline. But um, I definitely see it as one of the best ways for user research teams to actually get uh, to get implemented, to get uh, embedded within product and also to influence product strategy and product role mapping. So I think that's ultimately how we can best partner with our uh, our stakeholders in order to influence their longer term um, product role mapping. Right. Oh, cool. So, okay, maturity matter. I love that you're, you're. I can tell you're a very structured thinker. So this is great. Uh, I'll try to stay in the structure. Um, so, how do you identify? How do you identify when you come into a new organization? How do you know what the? How do you assess the maturity level? Yeah, and by the way, the structure can change. Right. I think companies will go through phases. Sometimes they will go from a high UX maturity to medium and back and forth. So and it all depends on where the, the business context um, and the ecosystem. So it is in flux. And so some of the things that I look for would be how research is actually involved. So types of research work. Um, is it mostly used on the evaluative and usability side? Is it a mix of usability and strategic? Um, is it more on the strategic side? That's one thing, one way to gauge the proportion of work between the buckets. Another way is to ask researchers, how do you actually influence your stakeholders? And usually from the responses that they give, it's um, you can get signals for which UX maturity level the company might be at. So for example, if a researcher says, yeah, I am able to get into product road mapping and planning cycles, and we're able to um, identify on that needs that we can explore in product for the next cycle, then that's a high maturity, high UX maturity company. If the researcher says, oh, you know, my stakeholders mostly sit in on my sessions and watch how, look at the feedback for our designs, then you know that it's it tends to be a lower to medium um, UX maturity company. So there's a couple of tells, but I would say look for how much the research team is able to influence when it comes to design and product. And can we actually move more upstream and more into longer term decision making based on the research findings? That's usually a good signal. Okay, cool. So, and I imagine also 
um, but please correct me if I got this wrong. I imagine also that the audiences are different depending on what kind of work you do. Like if you do usability, like very close to the product that's being developed right now, you're going to have like the engineers and the developers and like people that are involved in building. And if you do the more long-term stuff, then you could imagine that there's a different, audi different audience, perhaps like higher management or something like that. Is this, is this true or is it kind of mixed or how, how does that dynamic happen over time? Because I imagine it changes over time too. It does. It does. So I've typically seen that at smaller companies, when you're doing evaluator research, yes, engineers, um, designers tend to be more involved. I think it's more a correlation of company size, to be honest, rather than mm. what type of research work that you do. Um, so at Uber, we actually, um, our team primarily focuses on strategic research and the upstream types of research. When it comes to evaluator research, we actually train uh, PMs and also designers to do it themselves, or we use vendor support. So um, in terms of the strategic research we run, we actually have a number of teams involved and it depends on the project, but the more it is around visioning and longer term work, the more teams will actually be involved. So beyond just the product team and the design team, we may involve marketing intelligence. So they take care of a lot of research when it comes to kind of the marketing and positioning side of things. Um, we may also involve data science if there's already existing behavioral data that we can dive into and data science and UX are actually partner really, really well together because data mm -hmm. tells you the what's going on with the behavior and then the UXR is telling you the why. So we may have DS involved in that as well. Engineering, we've had some success in involving engineers um, upstream because Engineers are actually the best folks in terms of solutioning and thinking ahead about the solution. They really want to help problem solve. And I find that when we involve them in the research, they actually are much uh, quicker to kind of start thinking about solutions and what's possible downstream on the, the tech feasibility side of things. So uh, with a couple of projects, we were able to involve engineers as well. So um, I would say, yeah, overall, at bigger companies with the work that we do, we've done, the more strategic research, we've had a number of cross-functional stakeholders um, involved in the project itself. So correlation of the company size, I would say. I see, awesome. And it's, I mean, I, I recognize that, uh, that thing with the, you know, having the right people in the room uh, or in the session can be super important. I mean, I, I often tell, my researchers at look back i say well you know like if you if you show the problem to the engineers and the designers they're going to solve it and it's always the case like once that's the real power of user research for me that i've experienced on that kind of team when you're close to the product right but, but even on the strategic level it's like if you get the people in the room and they understand the problem they are going to they're just going to come up with solutions that we would never have thought about like me as a manager or even with the research team it's just like they just go and build it in a uh, by themselves, right? So, but you can also imagine that as the, as the organization grows, or uh, you know, it's it's the size of the organization and kind of the organization, the the maturity, like the strategic research is for this group, or the like, you know, the usability is for this group. <laughs> Do you see how kind of the organization is getting in the way of these like natural things, or and and how do you manage that um, as a, as a kind of research leader? Huh. Uh, let me ask you back. What do you mean by getting in the way? So I mean, like if, if you have, um, 
I can totally see how, for example, if you do like a, I'm going to try to give a good example here. People tend to, we, you know, as the organization grows and as we have these like complex uh, different teams, we always say like we, we don't want to work in silos. We want to work like with transparency and stuff like that. But in reality, what happens is it's kind of hard, especially if you're a global team with different time zones and stuff like that. Teams are in different places and it can be hard to scale that kind of natural engagement that happens at kind of the smaller team level with like a usability test, everyone's in there, everyone's having fun, everyone's like observing things. So I imagine as you move to a bigger organization, like, you know, even if the intention is there to spread this information and get the right people involved and everything, like the size of the organization can get in the way of that. I don't know mm. if that's something you've experienced and, and if so, like, what do you do to counter it? Yeah, that's a, a great point you made. Um, yes, big orgs do have a lot more stakeholders and a lot more kind of pre-planning that you want to be doing. So um, what I typically tell my team is think a little bit about who needs to be close to the project versus who needs to be informed. And then having the right touch points with people at different um, times of the project. So for example, when we're kicking off a project, there's going to be folks who need to be shaping the scope of the work itself. So for example, for um, a visioning exercise, it could be the director of product. It could be the design manager. So folks who are a little bit more at the executive level who have more of the questions um, around what's kind of the future vision, what do we want to pursue, what are the opportunities? So I would say um, when it comes to thinking about involving stakeholders at a big company, pre-plan for who's going to be with you at every stage of the way. In the scoping mm. part of it, who's going to be in the scoping kickoff call with you? How do you manage their feedback? How do you gather their ideas together? And then once you've put together the proposal, that's where you can share with a bigger group of folks to keep them informed about the work. When you are leading sessions, when you are doing observation or whatever methods you're trying to use, those the folks who have maybe the riskiest assumptions or the biggest question marks, you can invite them to sit in on your calls. So typically we actually send the invite to everybody within um, the, the working group and we limit to maybe to two external folks, two non-researchers who can sit in on each call. But we want to make that opportunity available to everyone within the working group. And then during the share out, so once you have the report and once you start to work on the next steps, those that will be the touch point to involve the wider group as well. So get your work out there, talk about some of the learnings and start working with the relevant teams on next steps. So I would say, yeah, it really varies depending on which cycle of which part of the research project you're in. But it's helpful to think about who to be involved, who to be informed. Um, that that would be the bucket, those bucketing um, right. that I would recommend to my team. So that's like stakeholder management and relationship <laughs> building. Is that a good bucket name for those things? Yes, exactly. Exactly. So if we stay, because I think this is something that a lot of people are, uh, you know, I, I, I have the benefit of talking to, doing research on researchers, right? So I, I've talked to so many different researchers <laughs> yes. at different places. And, and I know that this varies a lot, you know, and it's like when this stuff doesn't work, uh, it's it can be very hard to be a researcher. Um, and when it works, it's just magic. And you feel like everyone asks you, it's almost too much, like everyone, when's the next research session? <laughs> 
So, and we all want to get to some perfect uh, equilibrium there, of course. But so, what are some of the challenges that you've seen for? What are like the main challenges, if there are any patterns? Perhaps I don't know. Perhaps this is just like human to human, like depends on the team, right? But I imagine that there are some patterns in like what are some of the biggest challenges, more com most common challenges in this relationship management, stakeholder management thing? Like you don't have to name names, but is there like one team that's always a bit hard to get into the into the show, <laughs> so to speak, or like say interesting. Or, um, yeah, I think some of the general challenges I've seen, um, and I, I don't see this with any individual team, I see it kind of across the board. Um, so one, which you touched upon is, uh, we typically have more requests that we have people to help answer those questions. I see that with every single team, right? So the data science team also gets a lot of questions and they only have so many people to actually work on answering those questions. So what we typically do is we typically have a intake process. So any requests coming from any team member, we primarily service product managers and also designers, but anyone can put in a request and then we have a triaging process to decide if we want to lead that research if we want a vendor to take that research, if we want it to be self-serve research done by PM or design, or if we want to pass it to a different team, if it's more of a data science question or more of a marketing intelligence question. So that's roughly how we address the first challenge, which is we have more questions than we have people. The second right. challenge I would say is, um, I think especially as you get to bigger companies, the companies tend to have a lot more quantitative data, a lot more behavioral data. And there's what I've seen with data is that it tells part of the story, but again, there could be blind spots in folks making decisions based on the data alone. So if we're just looking at the quant side of things, it's almost as if a doctor is checking vitals and, and prescribing medication based on just your vital numbers and not talking to you. Right. So if you're seeing if a doctor is seeing that someone has high blood pressure, it could be because the person just ran. It could be mm -hmm. because the person has a family history of it. It could be because the person is stressed. There's a lot of environmental factors that are actually not considered when you just look at the quant quantitative side of things. So I think the second challenge um, that we've seen is sometimes folks tend to jump into conclusions based on the data alone. And the data provides a little bit of kind of a, a sense of security, like, oh, data is, um, is trustworthy. We see this globally. We see this pattern. We can jump into a conclusion and, and make decisions accordingly. But I would say, hey, there are assumptions being made. We need to actually understand the context behind the data and the story behind the data. Um, and I would say that addressing those blind spots and actually pointing them out at the right time with the right, right executive, I think those are also something that, you know, I've, I've been working with my team on in order to really kind of influence um, decision-making at the right time. Right. Yeah, because I know when I want to go for like, when I have a really good theory about something and I have confirmation bias, my favorite is when I find data that proves me right, right? Because that's like the, no, no one can question the data, right? So I, I've seen this struggle in myself sometimes and everything. And it's, how do you, it sounds to me like there's a lot of almost diplomacy and kind of like, you know, you have to kind of 
foresee these things and work with the right people and everything. Is this kind of a, is that how it is at the larger organizations or, and like how much, how much time do you put into that? Or, or is this something where it's kind of like, you, how much of that do you also um, have to, in your research leadership role, how much of that falls on you? And like, do you have allies in this where you like kind of see the same thing as you, they understand these blind spots, they understand that this is your job to get rid of these blind spots. Like, how does that work kind of the, the, the larger team hmm. that you're working with? Yeah, I think, you know, as we grow as researchers, the more that the more senior we become, the more we need to exercise these soft skills and exercise influence. And I think any researcher at any stage can lean into that. It's not just something for executives or people in research leadership. It could be at you know, any part of your journey, um, your research journey, you can lean into influence. And it's really about telling the story at the right time in the right conversations. So the first step is to be in the right conversations. Sometimes it could be at a research shareout. Some, sometimes it could be at a group meeting where you are seeing folks making assumptions. You can jump in to say, hey, I think we don't quite know the story behind it. We need to do additional research to verify that that's the case. So that could be one way to really have that, build that influence. And um, as you become more senior in your journey, you get exposed to different levels of those conversations. And then obviously your level of influence also changes. But I would say anyone within your research journey, spot the opportunities where you can start to shift the mindset of decision makers, point out those blind spots, um, champion the user voice to say, hey, you know, I think this is really hard for users to understand, or hey, I don't think this actually matches the workflow and the context of our users. We should actually backtrack or we should actually kind of do additional research to verify. Um, so yeah, so I would say that anyone can influence decision making. Awesome. So uh, we're coming up at time, unfortunately, but this, this was super <laughs> interesting. But um, I'm going to ask you one last question, which is, it sounds to me a little bit like, you know, I'm, I'm often struck by this interesting thing that as researchers, you know, researchers can use their research skills, not only with customers, but also with their stakeholders, right? You're kind of, you are the product for your, the research is the product for your stakeholders and you're kind of researching. It sounds like you spend a lot of time researching your stakeholders and the team and you're like, you're paying attention. Oh, here they made an assumption. Okay, I can intervene here. Oh, so I need to kind of plan for this thing. How how much time do you do you feel like you spend researching your company versus like researching your customers? <laughs> if this at all well, makes sense. Yeah, it, yeah great question. Um, I I don't think I overtly think about researching the company. I think as researchers, we just naturally gravitate towards our our skill set, which is deeply empathizing with the needs of who we're kind of talking to and who we're designing for. So it could be users on the other side or customers on the other side. It could be stakeholders, but I definitely, I wouldn't say I, um, you know, like intentionally research other folks on the team. Um, I think, you know, in, in terms of relationship building, it's definitely important to understand where is each team coming from? What are their needs and their challenges and how can research actually plug in? 
best. And I think that's probably the best principle. Um, mm. Please lean into your superpowers already. Researchers, we're already excellent at this, at building empathy and understanding needs. And I think that actually helps a lot with building bridges internally and also spreading influence. Awesome. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And, and I'm not just thinking that I've seen that in the research we've done, like when we look at researchers who are successful research leaders, they all talk about the importance of really understanding the needs of like applying the research superpowers to their stakeholders and their company and kind of all of that stuff. So uh, yeah, don't don't hold back. Research is not just for <laughs> when you're researching. It's this whole thing. So awesome. Yes. Uh, well, thank you so much. Any any last uh, advice to everyone out there who's trying to build a powerful stakeholder uh, engagement? Yeah, um, I would say identify and spot the opportunities to bring the team along. Um, Henry, you brought such a great point about involving stakeholders along the way, along your journey. And so, for example, uh, my team actually, we took about 86 um, stakeholders on a field work um, or a field trip activity where we had them talk to restaurant owners and really deeply understand their pain points, observe their workflows and things like that. And that was across PM design, data science, engineering. And um, I would say that alone really, really helps our teams. Um, I understand the value of research and understand why we need to build alongside our customers. So long story short, identify the opportunities where you see blind spots in your company involve your teams in these types of activities in the research as much as possible, have them hear directly from your customers as much as possible, and try to shift perspectives in the right key conversations. So good luck, researchers. Awesome. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Bye, everyone. Happy researching. Bye.